Well, good morning again. Let me pray for, for the message. Uh, uh, we're big on prayer around here because it's powerful. Father, come at this time to bring a message. I pray, Lord, that you would be in the midst of the message, that though it is my voice, the message would be yours, and that it would land in the places that it needs to land. I pray for each of us to hear through the, through the filter of the Holy Spirit that which you would have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So welcome to our At The Movies Summer Series. This is the second time that we've done this. The premise is really simple. The premise is that you can find God anywhere you look, even at the movies. So we've looked at Bohemian Rhapsody and Gifted and The Grinch Who Stole Christmas and uh, Hacksaw Ridge and Princess Bride so far. Today, we have a brand new movie. It's Harold Green's favorite movie. It hadn't been out very long. How long? Like 80 years. Um, <laughs> Stagecoach. So I'll try to keep the spoilers to a minimum in case you haven't seen Stagecoach yet. Um, but here's a, a little bit about Stagecoach. One, Hollywood's Golden Age tells us this about it. Stagecoach is a classic Western film. It was made in 1939, directed by John Ford, starring Claire Trevor, John Wayne. It's one of the most influential movies ever made, and it changed forever the way the Western genre is viewed. Previously, Westerns had always been cheap, kind of low-quality B-movies, but after Stagecoach, they were elevated to a serious genre, able to explore complex social themes, as well as being universally praised by the critic. The film was a major box office success, and I never say this name right, but I'm going to... Roger Ebert. <laughs> <laughs> says this. He says, seen today, Stagecoach may not seem very original. That's because it influenced countless later movies in which a mixed bag of characters are thrown together by chance and forced to survive an ordeal. The genre sometimes called the arc movie, and the film at times plays like an anthology of timeless cliches. You're going to see a woman going into labor as the doctor orders boil water, hot water, and lots of it. You'll meet a prostitute with a heart of gold, You'll, an evil banker, a shifty gambler, pure-hearted heroine, a murderous Apaches, the sultry Indian wife, the meek little traveling man, and a chase scene with a stagecoach driver going hell for leather. You'll see saloons, corrals, vast landscapes, campfires, and the U.S. cavalry, which sounds the charge before riding to the rescue. This was the forerunner of many of the movies that we see today. So Harold's favorite movie is an important movie. That was impactful for, for the movie world, uh, but especially for the Western genre. Now, I watched it a couple of times, and the thing that jumped out at me is something that Roger Ebert, <laughs> I was going to call him Bear. I don't even know why. I think it's Bobby Bear was a quarterback for the New Orleans Saints. Um, uh, come, come back. Okay. <laughs> uh, alludes to people do unexpected things. It's something that we've talked a lot, uh, a lot about here when we look at who God chooses to use. We've been looking at a lot of the characters from the Bible. A lot of those folks were not really the upper crust, so to speak. You've got Abraham and Moses and David, all the disciples. I mean, who goes and picks tax collectors and fishermen who are not the most educated to be your followers if you're Jesus? Well, Jesus did. And even to Paul, uh, God has a history of not doing the expected thing when he chooses those who uh, are going to be leaders in the faith. So I thought, of that about, uh, I thought about that, but I realized I've also talked quite a bit about that. So I ended up landing in a different place. Uh, I've been drawn to this scripture. It's a scripture that was just, uh, that Corey just shared with us. It's from Matthew 7. 
And I know you probably can't read that. So let me read it to you again. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So in this movie, we have some of those classic roles that Ebert is, points out. But we don't know that until we get pretty far into the movie because in the beginning, there's a lot of judgment going on. The prostitute is run out of town by the Law and Order League that was in the town. That's a women's group that was trying to, you know, was looking out, trying to keep the town holy. So if you weren't part of the, if you didn't fit the criteria, then you needed to leave town. So she got run out of town on the stage. That's why she was on the stage. The, there was also the drunk doc. He won an Academy Award, but it, in, the, in the movie, you know, he was also on this stage. He was forced to leave. And the Ringo kid was not on the stage to start with, but he walks up and he gets on the stage, and that's our first clip I want to show today. Well, you're the notorious Ringo kid. My friends just call me Ringo. Nickname I had as a kid. Right name's Henry. Seems to me I knew your family, Henry. Didn't I fix your arm once when you bucked off a horse? Are you Doc Boone? I certainly am. Ah, let's see. I'd just been honorably discharged from the Union Army after the War of the Rebellion. You mean the war for the Southern Confederacy, sir? I mean nothing of the kind, sir. That was my kid brother broke his arm. You did a good job, Doc. Even if you was drunk. Thank you, son. Professional compliments are always pleasing. Yes, they are. What happened to that boy whose arm I fixed? He was murdered. So you note that in this movie immediately the Ringo kid is cast into the the bad guy role right the banker he didn't say you're even the Ringo kid he said you're the notorious Ringo kid you're the bad guy you're the one that that has the reputation his response is well that's my nickname but I'm really my name's Henry you know the southern gentleman who's a gambler is is in this and in this scene we see some connections made by the bad guys if over here on the left is the, the prostitute and then uh, the Ringo kid, stagecoach driver, the gambler, um, the pregnant lieutenant's wife, the drunk doctor, the banker, uh, the guy who sold um, whiskey samples, really, and the sheriff. So, so we have this cast that's all thrown together on this stagecoach. But in that, for, in that scene... The, the connections are made by those we would cast in the role of bad guy, prostitute, bad. The Ringo kid, bad. Uh, the, the gambler, bad, right? So, so the good versus bad is easy to see. Lines in the sand are drawn clearly, and we like that. Don't, don't we want that? We want 
Show me where, where it is. I want it either here or here. I want clarity. I want, black and, I want a black and white world where there is no gray so that I can get it right, is, if I'm going to be honest. But, but that's what we at, we're after so often. And isn't God's economy very different from that? Isn't that the, the opposite often of what God does and, and the way that he sees us and sees life in general? It reminds me of this parable out of Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay, pay them a denarius for the day, and he sent them out into the vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw other folks standing around. So you know what he did, right? He hired them sent them out to the vineyard. You also go to work, and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. And he went out again about noon, and he went out again early in the afternoon about three, and he did the same thing. Again, at 5 o'clock, he went, and there were still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, well, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers in from the last to the first. The workers who were hired about five came in, and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, and you paid them the same as you paid us. You have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Kind of flips our economy and God's economy to different places. Or maybe the passage out of Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. In the movie, it appeared to be the case. What appeared to be the case ended up to not be the case. That first impression turned out to be the opposite of what almost every character's role was. Most of the bad guys ended up being good guys. Most of the good guys ended up being bad guys. Things were not the way they seemed. It's one of the reasons that I sometimes feel the weight of what I do, especially here on Sunday morning, because I know that what I teach is important. But what if I'm following the thinking of a Pharisee? Because it makes sense to me. Instead of teaching as Jesus would. Because that's what God wants. Did you know that Jesus didn't always make sense according to the church folk of his day? He didn't always do what they expected. He doesn't, uh, does what he did and, and what he asks of us doesn't always make the most sense from our human perspective. And I do wonder if we could see as God sees, if we could see how he sees us and how he sees others, what that would do to us. I don't think that judgmentalism is supposed to be a part of Christ's church, but it certainly is prevalent in many places. 
Not to mention that we have so many new avenues to exhibit our judgmentalism in, in the world these days. From Facebook to Twitter to Snapchat to Instagram to blogs and blogs and comment sections and GIFs and memes. You name it, we can get our opinion out there, right? We can tell people exactly how we think and what we feel and when we can come and we can pretend to be this, but our, we show who we are. Things that we often post before we really think about what they say about us. Or even more importantly, what does this say about the God that I claim to believe? You may be the only Bible that someone reads, right? You may be the only Jesus somebody sees. I may be the only, really scary, I may be the only Jesus somebody sees. God sees us with the eyes of a father. He sees our defects. He sees our blemishes. He sees our errors. But he also sees our value. He sees our value. You are valuable. You are God's masterpiece. Masterpiece. But it's a valid question. What is our Bible saying? If we're the only Bible somebody reads, what's it saying? And by that, I mean, what do our Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, other means of communication say about our faith? Do we show all people that they have value to us? Because we say in here, all means, do we mean it? Yeah? That'd be a good answer, yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> Do we mean it? Yes. All people have value to God. All people have value to God. The ones we like, the ones we don't like. All people. Do you have to like everybody? No, that's good too because we don't. <laughs> Do you have to love people? All people. Yeah. But loving someone is hard sometimes. But loving is possible whether we like them or not. Let me go back to that passage. I want to read the message. This is Eugene Peterson's interpretation of that passage. He says this. He says, don't pick on people, jump on their failures, and criticize their faults. Unless, of course, you want the same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. It's easy to see a smudge on your neighbor's face and be oblivious to the ugly sneer on your own. Do you have the nerve to say, let me wash your face for you when your own face is distorted by contempt? It's this whole traveling roadshow mentality all over again, playing a holier-than-thou part instead of just living your part. Be you for him, guys. Wipe that ugly sneer off your own face, and you might be fit to offer a washcloth to your neighbor. I had a sponsor. Y'all know I'm recovering. I had a sponsor who told me early on, because judgmentalism was, was, was me. I was very judgmental. And I don't mean making judgments. I'll talk about that in a minute because we all need to make judgments. But I was judgmental. And he told me this. You know, he said, Mike, if you spend six months out of every year trying to figure out what you need to work on, and you spend six months out of every year working on what you figured out, you don't have a lot of time to focus on everybody else. 
what he was saying without saying it was, get this, get this thing in your eye. Get that plank out of your eye. In life, we're going to make judgments. I'm not one of those guys who says we're never going to make judgments because if you're going to try to live a non-judgment life, I don't know how you do that. We wake up and make judgments. You know, we judge our circumstance. You know, we, 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 it's not possible. When people act a certain way, we need to make determinations about what we're going to do to respond to that. We're going to make judgments. We're going to judge. But I do fully subscribe to the perspective that we must avoid being judgmental, and I think that's a very different thing. Avoid elevating ourselves above others. Judge me better than you. We're not called to that. Avoid coming into circumstances prejudging what they should be. And I especially think we should stay pretty much completely, well, not pretty much, I think we should stay completely out of the business of judging salvation. That is God's realm. That is God's realm. Can we, do we see fruit or not fruit? Yes, we see fruit or not fruit. But we don't see the heart of it. When I, in my addiction, I was saved at 16 and sober at 29. You, there were at times in my, in my drinking and drugging when you looked at my life, you'd have gone, there is no way that he is a Christian. What you would not have seen was the internal turmoil and struggle and devastation that I was going through because I was doing that which I would not not that, that which I would do, I wasn't doing. And the things I didn't want to do, I kept doing. And I fought with Matthew 7. That's a scripture from Paul. And, and I grabbed hold of it because this, I knew this wasn't what I was supposed to be doing, but I was doing it anyway because I was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that's where conviction needs to come from. It doesn't need to come from Mike Divine. It needs to come from the Holy Spirit. Pay attention to the Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit will lead you and guide you. And that conviction, pay attention to it. It's going to, that, you know, if you get that twinge of guilt, maybe that's something we ought to look at, you know, I'm just saying. So all of that stuff, though, you know what God did with that? Continues to do with that. Continues to use it in the lives of others. And he wants to do the same with you. You have a story. You have a story that will impact others. God wants to use your story. He wants to use your story. Judge not lest you be judged because the judgment you use is the judgment you will face. That ought to scare us, really. <laughs> you know, if you spend time thinking about that, it's like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. So I try to choose grace. I'm a work in progress, too. I know, you know, I, make, I am who I am. I try to choose grace. I try to do that. I try not to elevate me at the expense of others. And, and I hope that you'll examine your life and look at that. At the end of this movie, they choose grace. Ringo Kidd's facing off against three brothers, that, and, and he's agreed to go back to jail. He had broke out so that he could face the, these brothers and... Uh, Dallas, the prostitute, has agreed to marry him. He's supposed to go to the ranch and wait for him if he survives. And here's the end of the movie.
kid. Thanks, Curly. Curly's gonna see that you can get to my place across the border. Bye, Dallas. Bye. Maybe you'd like to ride a ways with a kid. Please. Blessings of civilization. Yeah. <laughs> Doc? I'll uh, buy you a drink. Just one. Obviously, he survived. Did you catch that? He, never mind. Um, so he was supposed to go back to prison, but, but he didn't. And they, the, the doc and the sheriff let him go. He, he, uh, and they did it with a laugh, right? You know why? Grace feels good. Grace feels good. When, when, when we extend grace to others and, and, and we know that we have impacted, and, and even, uh, you know, it's just it's a powerful moment. And it's the, the great hope for why I let that thing run to the end. The great hope that we have is that those of us who follow Jesus, you know, one day we're going to be on that wagon. We're going to be riding off into the sunset, into a new life without all of the stuff of this one where that internal battle is gone, where that, that which I would do, I don't do, and the things I don't do, uh, I keep doing when that's gone. And we are with our Savior. What a day that's going to be, right? It's going to be incredible. I can only imagine. 